So I'm excited. Wow. We're in an incredible hour as a church, an incredible moment in history, and we need to be fully awake, fully alive for this hour and for this moment. And this is a, a beautiful weekend, actually, because in the spirit, we really did feel that something was, was shifting uh, over this time and over this weekend, and that this was a pivotal weekend. And in the natural, you can kind of look at that and go, huh? Um, but in the spirit, there's just something brewing. And I don't know if you could feel it this morning, but there's something different in the atmosphere. Yeah. And there's just something stirring. And, uh, you know, a couple, couple weeks, I think it was two weeks ago, or I can't even remember, the Lord spoke to me so clearly. And over the last three weeks, there was this like little shaking. I don't know if you could feel it in your life, but there was a little bit of shaking. And I think the shaking was to make sure you really do believe what we've been talking about. So we, we love to say, you know, we want to be built on the revelation of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. We want to spend our lives for Jesus. And, and then the shaking comes and it just makes you go, okay, do I really believe what I said? And that's what it felt like these last couple of weeks. But the Lord said to me, he said, the, the attempt from the enemy, it's an attempt. It's just an attempt. He won't win. But his, his tactic and his strategy, it's the same. And he's trying to get the dreamers to abort the dream, to distort the vision, to silence a generation, and to murder their transformation. And, uh, and I just, when he showed me this, he said, Connor, this will not stand. And so the enemy can, can do what he wants. He can, he can shake and, and scare people and do what he wants to try and do. But the reality is Jesus has already won. And he's called the bride to recognize the hour that we're in, the moment that we're in, to take a hold of the victory that's in the life of Jesus and to begin to live it out. So I just feel that this is such a, an important moment for the church, not just 24-7, but the church globally. And there's a birthing that's been taking place uh, in the last, for well, this year, actually. There's been an incredible birthing in uh, a few weeks ago, the Lord spoke to me about birthing a new Moravian movement. And if you don't know anything about the Moravians, they were an incredible group of people that committed themselves to three things. One, apostolic community, meaning they chose to live sent. They chose to, to, to live around the presence of the Lord, equipping one another to live sent. Number two, they chose to be built around His presence in that they had extended prayer and worship. They started a prayer meeting that lasted 127 or 29 years or something like that, nonstop. And it started with 24 people that committed to one hour a day. It's wild. And then the third thing was they decided as a community to take responsibility for the nations, that the gospel must go to the nations. And so they developed this community in Hernhut in Germany. They never grew bigger than about 300 people at one time, but they were responsible for over 3,000 missionaries. And the missionaries that were sent were not just ordinary missionaries. They were drenched in His presence. And so this, there was a sustainability to what they did because it was rooted and grounded in the presence of Jesus. It was never in our own works or our own efforts. And so when the Lord said, I want to, I want to rebirth or, or awaken a, a new Moravian movement, what He's saying is it's a movement of missionaries like we've never seen before, but they are birthed and sustained by His presence and what's going to uh, help this generation of sent ones to continue to finish what Jesus started here on the earth is that we're motivated by the worth of Jesus. That it's a, it's a group of people that know who He is and they see Him rightly and they are captivated by the beauty of Jesus and that's what motivates them. 
So I want to equip you today for the hour that we're in. I want to encourage you, stir you, um, uh, hopefully strengthen you in the faith for the, for the moment and the hour that we're in. And so I want to move real quickly through a couple of scriptures, and then I want to get to Revelations. But let's quickly go to John 14. John 14, 15, 16, 17, all the way through. We see Jesus preparing, teaching, equipping his disciples for the hour that they were in. And it was the moment that Jesus was going to die and give his life for us. And Jesus, before this time, he'd actually prepared them a couple times. There were multiple moments where he actually said to the disciples, I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised from the dead. I'm going to leave you, but I'm going to come back. And he explains this, but they just don't seem to be catching it. And so there's this interesting shift that happens because you need to understand the disciples, their journey with Jesus, their expectation of Jesus was that he was going to come, get rid of Rome and, and, and the, the Roman ruler, rulers over the land. He, he was going to get rid of that and he was going to become their king and they were going to be his generals and he was going to bring this kingdom now in this moment in a way that they thought they understood, right? And so when Jesus says things like, I'm the way, I guarantee you they're going, awesome, you're the way, you're going to change politics, you're going to change our situation, our circumstance, this is what's going to happen. And suddenly we begin to see in John 14, 15, 16, 17, how Jesus is revealing to them that my way is an unexpected way. Actually, you didn't expect this, you didn't plan for this, and it's not how you thought it was going to go. Are you still going to follow? And so we see in, in John chapter 14, he starts off, he says, Let not your hearts be trouble, troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So here he is. He's preparing them. I think when you're sitting with Jesus and he starts off with, Let not your hearts be troubled, you start to get a little nervous. What's coming next, right? Then he begins to talk about... Um, that he goes to prepare a place for you. I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I'm going you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Can you see how they're, they're not understanding? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. So here we see he's beginning to describe this way. And you begin to see a couple times where Jesus keeps talking about, don't let your hearts be troubled. And he's like cautioning them about this moment where they're beginning to realize this isn't going the way we planned. And then you get to chapter 16. So chapter 15, he's, he's giving them the tool, abide, abide. When you don't understand, when the unknown is before you, when it's an unexpected way, abide. Then we get to chapter 16. From verse 4, but I've said these things to you that when the, when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me. And then look what Jesus says. And none of you asks me, where are you going? Michael Miller, he, when he talks uh, about this passage, he says something so interesting. He says he can see that foggy haze that's coming over the disciples as they're realizing he's actually going. And so here Jesus is saying, now... Earlier, you were saying, show us the way, and Jesus is saying, I am the way. Now they're beginning to understand, oh, he actually means he's going to go. And this isn't the way that we expected. And then Jesus goes, now none of you are asking me, where am I going? So you can see suddenly the reality is hitting. Hold on, this is unexpected. We didn't plan for this. This is not going the way that we thought this was going to go. And he says, but because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. 
Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Something so interesting in this passage is that he uses this word sorrow. And he, suddenly there's a moment where, okay, the plan isn't how we thought, unexpected way. They're disappointed. They're discouraged. They have no idea how to handle this moment. And sorrow enters their heart. If you want to jump real quickly to Luke chapter 22, you'll see something quite interesting. Luke chapter 22. We'll just read from verse 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. Verse 40. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Pause for a second. It's an interesting thing to say. Imagine you came to a prayer meeting. And I was like, you're going to sit over there, and I'm going to stand over here, and we're going to pray. Just don't sin while you pray. Got it? <laughs> I don't think anyone's been to a prayer, a prayer time where you were asked not to sin while you're praying. It's a strange time to think about sin. So what is he talking about? These are the questions that, that are, are good to ask. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an, in an agony, uh, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. What was the temptation in this moment? They were falling into what sorrow produces in our heart, which is unbelief. And it's interesting that sorrow causes you to abort the dream, it distorts the vision, and it silences a generation. If we do not know how to steward our hearts in the, in the moment that we're living in right now, where the way might be unexpected, it might not be going according to plan for you, but Jesus is actually, he's finishing the work that he set out to do. And so this is when we have to learn to be followers. And a big part of following Jesus is learning how to steward our hearts when, it, we're, when we're in the middle of the unknown, when there's uncertainty around us. How do we respond to an unexpected way? How do we respond when Jesus begins to do something that we didn't expect or plan in our own understanding? And here's the danger is if we stay in a place of discouragement and we allow sorrow to, to find place to rest in our heart, then what happens is we begin to move into unbelief and we fall asleep as the bride in an hour when we should be awake and alive to what Jesus is doing. It's an incredible thing. Suddenly, jump across to John chapter 20. So now we know that Jesus has died, he's been raised, he's appearing to the disciples. But during this time, things, I guarantee you, this is what was going through the disciples' head. Jesus has died, so we, wait, we haven't seen him yet. We're locked up, afraid in a room. And what's going through our head is Jesus says things like, they hated me, they'll hate you. They, you know, killed me, they'll kill you. Things like this. Can you imagine what's in your head going, Jesus, we thought he was going to come and, and the kingdom was going to come. He was going to rule in this moment. Now they did kill him. He said what they do to him, they're going to do to us. 
Can you imagine where they were in that moment? The sorrow, the fear, the disappointment. They don't understand what's going on. But Jesus appears to them again. Chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the, angel, then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Suddenly, joy is replacing sorrow. And Jesus promised them that their sorrow would be turned to joy. What turned sorrow into joy? It was the revelation of Jesus. Something clicked in their heart. Oh my word, you said this. You said you would die. You said you'd be raised. You did it. And then he speaks to them and says, peace be with you. And they rejoice and they're glad. Then he does something so incredible. He says, Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. There's the commissioning. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are, they, uh, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from them, it's withheld. Here's a beautiful moment where Jesus begins to reveal his way. And this is where we are at a moment as the church globally where it didn't go according to plan as to how we maybe thought it was going to go. But we need to learn how to steward our hearts to be good followers because when he reveals his next move, are we ready, awake, and alert to say yes and to follow? Are our hearts tender before him? Are we beholding Jesus or have we fallen asleep in sorrow? And I always say that in this moment, I don't want to stand before Jesus one day and say, Lord, I sat back and watched you write history. I want to be the pen that he writes it with because that's the heart of God. And so how do we set ourselves apart to be obedient, to follow Jesus in moments of unknown and uncertainty? It's, it's where we have to get to the place where the only certainty we require is the revelation of Jesus and that I've learned how to yield and follow and obey. And I've learned how to steward my heart in the vision, the perspective, the revelation of faith that's in Jesus and not in my situation, my circumstances or what's happening around me. And this is a, a time in history where there's this temptation to begin to look at what's happening around us and get sucked in to something that's, that seems right and seems like something we should give our attention to, but it's actually a distraction that's taking us away from the very moment that we're in in history. And I want to tell you this, the moment we are in right now is the revealing and the manifestation of Jesus and his kingdom. And, and the church and the bride is awakening to this reality. And something that's happened in 24-7 church this year is that we set out to be a people built on the revelation of Jesus. Because in Matthew 16, he says, on this rock, what rock is he talking about? The revelation of the sun. If you go read that passage. He said, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So where does the church walk in victory when they're built on the revelation of the sun? But here's the thing, and this is where you might have felt the shaking and why 24-7 I feel at this hour is, is pioneering something, is because when you build on the revelation of Jesus, then you aren't here for any other reason other than that Jesus is here. When we build on the revelation of Jesus, we're built on His presence. So now it's not about you and what you can get. It's about worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive the reward of His suffering, and I will gladly lay my life down. 
now you begin to see a family that's missional, not because we decided to be passionate about something, but actually because we've been captivated by the desire of our hearts, the desire of the nations, the shepherd of our hearts, the shepherd of the nations. It's impossible to encounter Jesus, to fall in love with him and to cultivate relationship with him and not burn for the kingdom. And so what's happening is we, we sing songs about, you know, returning to our first love. What we don't realize is when you return to your first love, you are also returning to the kingdom. You are also returning to the most powerful explosion of the life of God on the earth that's going to come through laid down lovers of Jesus that know how to do the simple things well. So what happens is if we don't know how to steward our hearts, then we start to be led by our intellect rather than yielding in humility and dependence to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And so we begin to seek understanding instead of seeking to receive revelation. So how, this is incredible. We look at these disciples. They walked with Jesus for two and a half years, whatever it was. Um, I know three years Jesus' ministry, but he called them later on. But so they had walked with Jesus for a while and they still didn't recognize what he was doing or the way that he was actually paving for us. But who did? Let's quickly go to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14 verse 3. This is in that Passion Week. This is just before Jesus is going to be betrayed and before he's going to die. Mark chapter 14, verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment. This is Mary of Bethany. She came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. It was, about, it was worth about a year's wages. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. Listen to this. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This is a powerful moment. Because the disciples and those around Jesus didn't recognize what Jesus was doing, but Mary of Bethany did. Not only did she recognize who he was and his worth, but she actually recognized what he was doing and was preparing his body for burial. So what was it about Mary of Bethany that enabled her to see and understand who Jesus is and what he's doing that even his own disciples missed? She knew how to sit at his feet. She knew how to do the simple things. She knew how to behold. She knew how to simplify life simply to the, the point of being at his feet, looking at his face, listening to his voice. It's the most simple things in the kingdom that will produce the most profound impact and transformation on the earth. So here's this beautiful woman, and I find this so incredible that she does this. She wastes her life. I mean, this is an expensive, this is, this is, this is like, it's, it's wild, it's extravagant for her to spend a year's worth of wages 
on Jesus. She breaks it on his head, pours it over his body, fills the room with a fragrance. And Jesus says something so interesting. He says, And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. He takes Mary of Bethany, in the words of R.A. Martinez, he says, He takes Mary of Bethany and he puts her right at the center of the end time harvest. And he says, this story will be told wherever the gospel is preached. Why does he do that? Because the generation that's going to finish the task of the Great Commission is not going to be people that have to hype themselves up to do it. They're going to be people who know his worth and are sustained by his presence. They know how to sit at his feet, behold his face, hear his voice. And that's what sustains them. And that's what motivates them and drives them. That's what gives them purpose and reason to go to the deepest, darkest places where no one wants to go. You know, I know in the last couple of months, we've been talking about nations a lot. And I'll tell you why. Because Jesus is. He wants every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And for so long, the church has sat back waiting for somebody else to care about the things God cares about. And now suddenly he's awakening our hearts to his dream. And when we begin to pray the prayer like, Lord, give me your heart. We think it's goosebumps in a room and a feel-good moment. But suddenly, He opens the eyes of your heart to see nations, tribes, tongues, people, faces, names, locations that you've never thought of, you've never even considered. And God says, this is what I care about at this moment. This is what I care about. That actually there's three point something billion people who have never heard my name, who don't know me. That actually I'm coming back for a bride that is so diverse, colorful, and beautiful of every tribe, of every race, of every tongue and I'm preparing this bride and I've just decided and I'm inviting you to come into that decision to make the decision in your heart to say I will live for one thing and one thing alone that when I stand before Jesus not only will I have known him intimately but I was a part of him receiving the reward of his suffering that when I look into his eyes I will see the bride for his glory the reflection of this beautiful bride in the eyes of Jesus. And sometimes we think, well, what can one little life do? God takes the smallest little yes. The smallest little yes. He takes that and He puts it before the nations. And He begins to shine and radiate the face of Jesus. In every smile, in every hug, in every song, in every sermon, in every act of service. And every plane ticket bought. So how do we position ourselves in a moment like this to be a true follower of the way when it's unexpected? We have to learn to sit at his feet. We have to learn to be like Mary of Bethany. If you go with me to uh, Revelations chapter 1. Is everybody okay? <laughs> What's that? <laughs> Not really. Uh. <clears throat> I don't know why I'm, I'm so s- captivated and just stuck in Revelations 1 right now. Probably because the first couple of words are the revelation of Jesus Christ. And listen to this. The Re- this is chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants. So the Father gives to Jesus 
a revelation of Jesus to show to his servants for what reason the things that might soon take place, that they'd understand these things, they'd begin to see. Isn't it interesting that God's way of showing you what's to come is not to actually show you the events, but to give you the revelation of Jesus Christ. That in the revelation of Jesus, you have everything that you need to do what he's called you to do. That you don't even have to understand your situation, circumstances, the things that's happening. If you behold Jesus and receive the revelation of the Son, you've been given everything that you need. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear. If you want to be blessed, take note. And who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. For the time is near. Let me just maybe give some context to this. John is, at this time, he's writing this letter. He's the last apostle that was with Jesus alive. <clears throat> he's the last one alive. And there's been a change in the emperor. Nero is finished and Domitian, I think that's how you say it, has now come in. And Domitian did something so interesting. He actually came into power. And what normally happens is while the Caesar is ruling, it's, he's a king. But when he dies, they make him a god. But Domitian decides, I'm going to be a god while I'm still alive. And so he makes that statement, and so what happens is he exalts himself to this place of everybody must worship me, and so Christianity has become a, a huge threat to this king's desire, right? And so here you've got John, who's been thrown onto the island Patmos, if you want to read it in chapter 9. I, John, your, uh, not chapter 9, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So here's John, amazing man, who's carrying the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. There's a spirit of prophecy on John. He's carrying the word of God. He's an apostle. He's, he's endured some horrific things. And now because of the gospel, he's been thrown onto this island called Patmos. And this isn't a, a Caribbean island uh, destination. This isn't a holiday resort. In fact, when you study Patmos, it's actually a volcanic island. And uh, all these islands there were. And uh, it was just rock. And so it actually was a labor camp where the prisoners were put there to, to chip away at the rocks. And, and there was mining and stuff going on. And they actually created um, these prison cells in these caves, these wet, damp caves. And so here's a guy, the last apostle, who's been thrown onto this island because of the gospel. He's mining, chipping away at rocks every day, and sleeping in damp, wet, cold caves. And I guarantee you, he's thinking about things like, did we do a good enough job in preparing the church for what's coming? I guarantee you he's, he's thinking about, did we raise up leaders for this hour? Because the persecution is hitting the church like they've never seen or understood before. And this is the birth of the Christian movement. And can you imagine the thoughts in his head? Are, is, is Christianity going to make it through this? And I, I'm sure he has these moments with the Lord where he's crying out. Going, Lord, I'm the last apostle that's, that walked with Jesus. And are they, whatever's happening there in the mainland, are they okay? Are they enduring? And I love that the book of Revelation is God's response to John on this island. And it's a letter to the church in an hour 
that is intense. There is intense persecution, political stuff going on. Isn't it interesting that every time there's political stuff going on, we always think, we get wrapped up in the political stuff, hoping that Jesus is going to do something there and fix it. And then what Jesus actually does is he says, actually, it's an unexpected way. This is the way. And it's just purely in the revelation of the Son. And when we begin to walk in that, we walk in power, we walk in His kingdom. And we see His kingdom come on the earth. It doesn't look like any earthly kingdom, but it brings the power and the demonstration of the Holy Spirit. And so now this is Jesus' response. And He's saying the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to Jesus, He's showing to His servants to prepare them for what's to come. Verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Just before we read on, I want to encourage you when you read stuff like this, I try and read it picturing and imagining and trying to feel the heart of John as he's writing this, that he has just seen something so profound. And he's writing this because Jesus told him to write it and to send it to the churches. And Jesus is revealing to him What's happening and what's going to happen and, and this, this revelation that's going to sustain the church. It's the ignition, it's the fuel, and it's the destination. And he says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation and in the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Listen to this. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice <clears throat> like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Here's Here's Jesus responding to the heart cry of John at an hour where the church needs to be strengthened. So he's saying, I'm going to give you something that I want you to send to the churches. And look at what he gives him. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But when he laid his right hand on me, saying... 
Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Pause for a second. He's explaining there that the lampstands, that when he first saw this vision, he saw one standing in the middle of the lampstands like the Son of Man. Jesus is giving an answer to John, and what he's saying is, do you see where I'm standing? I'm right at the center of the lampstands that represent the church. And he's, he starts out saying the revelation of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you're catching this, but what he's saying is it's the revelation of Jesus that the church is built on, sustained by, and that's where we're going to end up, that for all of eternity we'll be beholding the brilliance, the magnificence, the beauty of Jesus, receiving revelation again and again and again. And so you look at Revelations 4 and 5, and you see the throne room, and they go, and they sing a new song. And what's the new song? Holy, worthy. And then they sing a new song, holy, worthy. And they sing a new song, holy, worthy. I don't know about you, but I'm going, this doesn't sound like a new song. Do you want to know why it's a new song? Because every time you see him, it's like the first time. Every time you sing holy, it's like the first time you sang holy. How do the four living creatures around the throne, covered in eyes, look at him and always seeing the beauty of God and they crying, holy, holy, holy. Why? Why do they do this for eternity? Because every time is like the first time. And we as the people of God cannot be those that are caught up in everything but the beauty of Jesus. We have to be the ones that see Him rightly. We have to be the ones that look into that face and that the reflection of His glory is seen in and on our lives. And that the world around us begins to see the one reason why we were created and alive. That when we go to the nations, we're not going to the nations to feel like we've done something to be a part of this. But actually we're going because He's worthy. And that I will see Him in the people of the nations. I will see Him in the lands. And that they would see Him in me. And that Jesus would be enthroned and glorified and magnified. And so when you go to your business on a Monday morning, are you going there because you have a job to do and bills to pay? Or you're going there because he's worthy. Because just like he'll open your heart to nations and people and places, he'll also open your heart to people that have been around you every day that you never even took notice of. And he says, I care about this. And so suddenly you stop for the one because you stopped for the one. So as the church being positioned in an hour like this, we have to make sure that we are building on the revelation of Jesus and not on anything else. Because when the shaking comes, what tries to happen is insecurity tries to find place to land in the bride. And when we operate out of insecurity, we bite one another, hurt one another, blame one another. And frustration builds in your heart because you're frustrated with yourself and you begin to project it on other people. And suddenly we no longer look like the bride anymore. 
And it all comes from one simple thing. You can try all the seven steps to whatever success you want to have. The most successful place you'll ever be is right at the feet of Jesus, looking at his face, receiving the revelation of who he is. And it's when you do that, it's when you do that, when you see him rightly, that's when you'll be able to see your brothers and sisters rightly. And that's when love begins to flow, true love. And so we can look at what God's doing in 24-7 right now. And if you set your expectations on coming to a community that's going to meet all of your needs, you will be sadly disappointed. But you come to a community that's in love with Jesus, and you come here for a reason, and one reason alone, because Jesus is here, and He loves this family, and He's glorified and magnified and enthroned. You do that, and everything you've ever needed will be found in Him. Everything you've ever desired will be found in Him. The benefits of family come first and foremost from who? Come on. We want the benefits of family without the revelation of the one who actually gave birth to this family. Because when Jesus was hanging on that cross and they, they wounded him in his side and he cried out, Kalah, which means it is finished my bride, completion, perfection. He gave birth just like God took Eve out of Adam's side Jesus gets stabbed in his side here to prove that he's dead and blood and water come out and he gives birth to what? The dream of God. Because at a birth, blood and water come out. At the death of Jesus, blood and water come out, out of his side. He's giving birth to his bride. And he's making it clear to us. He's saying, this will be a bride defined by my blood and by the living waters of my spirit. And when I return... I will look at a spotless, perfect, holy, blameless, diverse bride of every tribe, every nation, every language. And I will hear, can you just picture this for a second? You and I will hear the sound of the multitudes of every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping Jesus in the manner that he is worthy of. You're not going to see a bunch of people worthy you're going to see extravagant, wild worship like you have never heard of before. You're going to hear rhythms and sounds and melodies and harmonies like you've never experienced. And here's the beautiful thing. It's not going to be external. It's welling up within you. And so what are we living for as the church? Because Jesus died for a bride for his glory. And so we are being prepared as a bride for his glory. And it's at this hour we need to be awake and alive to what he's doing. We cannot allow sorrow to cause us to fall asleep. There should be no landing place for disappointment, discouragement, and sorrow in our hearts. Because we know Jesus. We know who he is. And, and you cannot have him as the desire of your heart and not receive him as the desire of the nations. You cannot have him as the shepherd of your heart but not the shepherd of the nations, because he is the king of glory. Psalms 24, 7, lift up your heads, O you gates, open up you ancient doors, that what? The king of glory may come in. That's the moment that we're in. It's in a moment when you want to drop your head, when it looks like there's no hope for anything, and Jesus is saying, lift your head, open up, open up. Why? This is the hour, this is the moment that the king of glory wants to come in. Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Come on. Thank you, Jesus. So I felt this morning there's open heavens. There's always open heavens, but it was like suddenly everyone in this room realized it. 
That's what happens. You, every time you come to a service, there's open heavens. But things start to happen when everyone comes and goes, there's open heavens. Because faith begins to stir in the room. And when there's faith, suddenly God can do anything. Anything can happen in this room. Anything. So you have to decide what kind of climate you're going to set in this room. And if you set the climate, a climate of faith, then suddenly God goes, you have no idea what I've been longing to do in your life. So will you stand with me? Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Whoa. Yeah. The, the way you know the health of the church is if they're hungry. That's how you know we're healthy when we're hungry. And so I ask Holy Spirit, put a hunger in us today that we have never had before. A deep longing, a yearning, a hunger for your presence, a hunger for more. That we will not stop. We will not settle. We want all. And so I ask now, Holy Spirit, for the fire of God. The fire of God to fall on your church, Lord. To awaken your church in an hour like this that we will not fall asleep with sorrow. But we will be alive with the revelation of Jesus burning in our hearts. Burning in our eyes. Fire on our hands and on our feet. Fire on our hearts right now.